0: Paul continues to build and encourage and bring everybody to his destination, which is salvation. But he has to knock things down first. Um, that's just kind of part of construction. you got to get to the bedrock. you got to get down to where the foundation is going to be solid. Otherwise, everything you build on top of that will be subject to the foundation you build it on. And Paul does not want to start on another man's foundation. It's very biblical. Um, it's important. And so he's taking out um, what other people have built their faith upon, or there wasn't even faith back then, or even at this point, built their relationship with God upon. He had to take it out first, because he knew if he just added Jesus to the top of it, then Jesus is as strong as that foundation isn't good enough. That's why Jesus has to be the rock. He has to be the starting point. I think it's interesting that Jesus is the rock upon which we build, right? But he's also the cornerstone. He's the beginning and the end. That's really what he's getting at here. And so Paul's taking all the guys before, and he's going to bring them in this chapter all the way back to Abraham so they understand something, because they need to. He's talking to the Romans, but he's also talking to the Jews and the Gentiles both. He knows he has a mixed crowd, and of course he's called out the wicked sinners in chapter 1. He's also called out those who are pointing at the wicked sinners in chapter 2. Chapter 3 he begins to build, and chapter 4 he drives it home as far as faith. It's by grace and by faith that we're saved. It's in grace, it's in Jesus that the law of the Old Testament is fulfilled, it's completed, it's not done away with. It's fulfilled. So in verse 1, he says, What then shall we say, building upon last week? Maybe I should read verse 31 so we get there. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Remember, the law is there as a tutor to teach us that we need option two, a salvation, a solution. We need a Savior. We need Jesus and so the law brings us to that place. We, we ratify it. We, uh, we establish the law by accepting Christ. We prove the law true. Going 100 miles an hour down Market Street, you see the speed limit sign of 25. A lot of people would say, and this is where these guys were, well, from now on, we're going to go 25 and be righteous in the eyes of the police officers. But that doesn't take care of the problem before when you met the sign the first time. Red lights are flashing. All your friends driving by, you know, seeing you pulled over and all. Busted, guilty. And saying that to the police officer who does nothing but enforce the law, that's all he can do or she can do. To say them, from now on, I'm really going to do it. Thanks for putting that sign up. No, no, the sign was to show you that you're a fool, because anybody knows this is a residential street, and nobody goes 100 miles an hour down it with or without the sign. You knew better. What if a kid had walked out in the street? You wouldn't have enough time to stop. It's all common sense. It was built in. You know this. Yeah, but from now on, I'm going to really be careful. It doesn't do any good for the transgression already, for the sin. And so the law, the sign, showed us that we needed a solution. How do I get out of this then? I'm going to jail, 100 miles. That's a big jump. That's not just a ticket. That's a forfeiture of your license immediately. That's a ride in the back of the cop car with some cuffs on, and you're going directly to jail for that. How do I get out of it? Well, I need a solution. And that's what the law intended to do for everybody. So Paul is simply saying, I'm not getting rid of the law. I'm not saying that that was a dumb idea, and we're trying idea number two. Paul is simply saying that Jesus is the solution that the law was meant to show that you needed. Okay, so verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So there is the point of chapter 4. Grace versus um, owed, wages. Wages are something that's due. I think it's funny that when you get your paycheck from your boss, you tell him, thank you. I don't. Snatch it right out of his hand. It's about time. Well, they look at you kind of funny maybe, and I've never done that, I'm kidding. But you could do that, there's nothing they could say to you. Well, that was very ungrateful. What do you mean? I worked 40 hours. I earned this. I owe you nothing. I don't owe you a thanks. You owe me the check. And now that you've paid it to me, we're exactly even. Maybe you should do that next week, see what happens. (laughs) But it is kind of funny that we do that. Thank you. Thank you for this check. You're welcome. No, 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 no. I give you 40 hours of my life to this place. You owe me. That's what we're saying when we try to keep the law to enter into heaven. When people say that they're righteous before God because of the law, they show up to heaven with that same attitude, snatching salvation right out of the hands of God, saying, nod at the head and walk through the gates. There's no thanksgiving because it was earned. There's no reason to have any love or heart or any kind of relationship. It's an employer-employee contract. I gave you good works. You owe me salvation. Abraham is the example. Paul has to take these folks all the way back to Abraham. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. Israel goes into Egypt for 400 years, gets taken out of Egypt by Moses, then the law. So he's going way, 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 way back, 400 years before. Way back. More than that. Way back. Going all the way back to Abraham, because Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, this is probably one of the most important chapters, if you can get this understood. One of the things we try to teach our kids, and you try to teach your kids, is a basic principle that applies to lots of situations. You don't want to have to teach them every situation. That would take forever. You know? If a blue car, you know, or a red car or a black car comes down the street, you don't want to go through all that. You just want to say, look both ways before you cross the street. Doesn't matter what kind of vehicle's coming, they'll all smash you. It's a principle. This chapter 4 has a principle that applies to all the situations. That's how God works. That's how God teaches us things. This is a principle I want you to apply to all these situations. And this grace principle versus wages principle will teach us how to understand and how to fully enjoy your salvation, to bring you to a place of assuredness of your salvation, no more doubts about whether you're going to go to heaven when you die. Grace is everything everything. So he takes them all the way back to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What was? Well, let's read the scripture. If you turn to Genesis 15, 6, when it happened, way back in Genesis, we'll go back to verse 1 of chapter 15, so we have some context. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, name not changed yet, in, vision, in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir." And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall, be, so shall your descendants be. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham believed what God had told him about having a son and that he was going to be the heir, and that was accounted for righteousness. That's all God asked of him. I just want you to believe me when I tell you this. There's a lot going on here, though. Abraham was past the ability to have children, long since dead in that area of his life. Same with Sarah, or Sarai at the time. She wasn't able to conceive either. Neither of them. I mean, they were not just a little old old, old, like twin beds on opposite side of the room's old, if you understand, okay? But Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God just counted him righteous. I think that's important to understand that word accounted, not made him, counted him. I just count you righteous. It's an accounting term. It's an actual term that's used to put a bunch of money on the ledger that you can draw from, is the idea. You still may debit that account at times, but it's... Not funded by you. It's funded by somebody else. It's just constantly full. and Not always the case. In most accounting, you put a thousand, some of you have secured credit cards. You put $500 in the bank and then you can use it like a debit card. It's a secured card. That's how you usually start to get your credit. And then it's all downhill from there, by the way. But suppose that's how you start it. Well, in God's economy, though, it's an endless pool, an endless supply. You can't out-debit it. You can't out charge it basically that's what it means by he's accounted him righteous i've given you righteousness i've accounted it to your account to account you may withdraw from that you may not look like it you may try to uh, diminish that but you can't because it's my righteousness it's my account you can't take away from it that's why you can't outsin god's forgiveness or outsin his grace that's what it means by accounted if it said he made him that's different because then, after that point, after he made him that, he owes him that. It's, it's a different deal. You really have to understand this. He's accounted him righteous, given him that righteousness. It's accounted to him. And for me, too, and for you, too, which is where we're headed with this. But it was because he believed God. Now, later on, Sarah, Sarai, doesn't actually just have an immaculate conception, she doesn't just birth a child. This is what Paul's taking them to. There was some action that needed to take place, and we won't go into details there. But Abraham had to believe God so much that he actually followed through, pushed the twin beds together, if you catch my drift. That's what it is with us, with God. I will give you salvation. I can offer you grace. It's available to everybody, but we, by faith, have to have our part in that. This is the example we have. God counts him righteous. I don't know what men thought of Abraham. I don't know what men think of you. Mankind thinks of you or thinks of me. But my God counts me righteous. That's really all that matters since he's the judge, right? A lot of people would say otherwise. A lot of people would point to me and say, "Uh uh-uh, he ain't righteous. God says I am. And you really have to rest on that. That's where the strength and the assuredness of your salvation comes from. Not what people think or what they see or even what you think or see. I think that's one of our biggest enemies is ourselves. Not only is Satan the accuser of the brethren, I am the accuser of the brethren. I accuse myself all day long. But God, on the other hand, who is the judge, says, I'm righteous. He's given me his righteousness. He's accounted me righteous. I rest in that. It brings me rest. Let's put it that way. I tell you what, I don't rest in it all the time. There's a lot of times I stress it out. I sweat it out. I'm like, I don't know, you know? And then I go to his word, and I go to what he said. and I have to trust him. That's what faith is. I believe you because you said you accounted it righteousness. But men may think otherwise. He's not just saying here also that you're innocent. You're innocent. That means that you just haven't broken the law, but you've done nothing good either. Righteousness is both not doing evil, but also doing good at the same time. This is where the mind-blowing part gets, if you actually spent time to think about it. When he says that he's accounted you righteous and has righteousness, that means you not only haven't sinned, you've also done the best you ever could at the same time. That's what righteousness is. That's amazing. So, back to Romans. Paul trying to take them to that place. Look, look, look. It's not the law. We ratified the law. We secured the law. We fulfilled the law by believing on Jesus Christ. Think about Abraham. We're going way back to him. We're going beyond the law. Abraham, our father. They used to say that all the time. Our father Abraham. Nobody else could say that but Israel. Our father Abraham. Nobody else could. Don't you dare try it. Even if you were a Gentile who got saved or got uh, into the Jewish faith, you couldn't say Abraham was your father. You, only the Israelis could. They, it's very important to them. Ever wonder why the Lord's Prayer starts off that way? It drove them crazy. It drove them crazy for everybody in the crowd to be saying, Our Father who art in heaven, you can't say that. He's our father, not your father. You're the redheaded stepchild we just brought along for fun. That's how they thought of him. Our Father who art in heaven drove them crazy. So he says that Abraham, our Father, has found according to the flesh, for, it, uh, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It wasn't because he was good work, or did good works, or justified by them, it was because he believed God. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So those who teach that if you have to believe in Jesus, you are doing a work which is taught, that's works. If you believe in Jesus and that's required of you, that means that's your good work and you're trying to get to God based on your good works, then Abraham's in error for even pushing the twin beds together. That's the point. God said it. Abraham acted upon God's word And that's what faith is. That's action. If God says, believe on Jesus for your salvation and you shall be saved and completely set free, there's an action that has to take place if I truly believe him. My faith works by believing on Christ for salvation. It's the action, there has to be that action. There has to be a response. It's not just something that happens to you. It's something that you believe on. And belief shows up in faith by actually doing it. Now, verse 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And here's the quote from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sins. David wrote that. David understood that. This is another one of the big boys in the Old Testament who understood that they needed to believe in God by faith, that it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats that was going to save them, that it wasn't keeping of the law that they could show up before God and say, you owe me because I kept the law perfectly. David and Abraham now have been brought into the story. It's by grace. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, it's the ungodly that God justifies. He doesn't justify the godly. They don't need justification. Justification doesn't need to come to anybody but the ungodly. When I get justified, it's because I'm ungodly. I forget that. Daily, I forget that. I think, you know, God doesn't like me as much today because I'm not as godly as I was yesterday. It's little things like that, that these arguments I have in my head that really mess things up. It it confuses my relationship with God. I forget that I'm not the plumber at his house. Trying to do good work so that he can pay me at the end of the day. That's how I think of it sometimes. I mean, I never say that out loud. I'm a relative. I'm a relative in his house. I, I, I hate. I mean, I'm, I'm the bride. I'm his wife. You know. I, I'm, I don't try to win his love and affection and his, and his heart for me every single morning by doing good works all day long. I hope he likes me today. I don't think he likes me as much as he did yesterday because yesterday I was a much better wife. But today I wasn't such a good wife today, so I think he doesn't like me anymore. So it, It doesn't make any sense when you put it that way, the way he puts it with us. It's a relationship that we have with him. No, you're my bride. And I wash you with the word of God, and you're as white as snow, and you're as you're as gorgeous as you're ever going to be. You can't improve upon what I've done for you and to you and in you, through you. I've done it. To live in that, because here's the argument. Here's where everything, this is where where the Judaizers and the law keepers swoop in. What about holiness? What about holiness before the Lord? Be holy for I am holy. You got to say it like that, like Ken Graves. You got it. Be holy, because I'm holy. That's very true, But how do, and, I, and we should be. There's nothing wrong with that, but how do you produce that? How do you produce holiness in your life? You can't produce holiness through fear, and I don't know if he likes me today or not. If I'm holy, maybe he'll like me more. That's not the relationship he wants to have with us. He wants and is the husband who gives us everything ahead of time, and because of that, we become holy. We want to please him, not to get what he's already given us because it's ours. It's because of what he's given us. It's because of salvation. It's from love. It's from grace. It's from mercy. It's from forgiveness. It's from righteousness. It's been imputed to us that we become holy before him. I don't want to offend him. Why would I ever want to do anything to hurt him? Are you kidding me? Why would I ever seek your approval over his approval? In this world, why would I ever care what you think over what he thinks of me? Why would I ever want to do what I want to do when he's done so much for me already? But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just like Abraham, so are we. Just as David also described, and he describes that in Psalm 32. Psalm 51 is even better. I know you don't desire the blood of bulls and goats, or I'd do it if I thought that'd help. David had such a relationship with God that was just like Abraham's, that's just like ours, that even though he didn't know the name of Jesus Christ, he understood that I just have to throw myself at the mercy of a loving and beautiful God who cares for me and will provide the seed That we've all been waiting for this Messiah, and he will die for me. I know that. I'm waiting for that. And he just shares it with him in a beautiful psalm, two of them, 32 and 51. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. It is a blessing. Verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? or upon the uncircumcised also. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Now that's got them searching those scriptures, right? Mm. Genesis 15 does come before Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is when circumcision is given. So 15 was said, to Abraham when he was uncircumcised? You know? Paul, boy, he's smart, isn't he? Just whipping those arguments out there like that, everything they trusted in. Yeah, but we know we're circumcised. Yeah, but this was given before then. That's right, it was. You know? Hmm. I love it. Smart. God will do that. The more you read his word, the more he puts stuff together, the more you can just sit. And you can just piece it all together. If he said that, then what about over here and over there? I did that. You can put together this magnificent truth of God's word and how the common threads that go through it all. And Paul's just laying it out for him. Look, you guys talk about this circumcision all the time that you guys got your foreskins off and these guys don't have their foreskins off and that you're better than they are because the only people that are offended by chapter four are those that thought they were better than everybody else. Everybody else who knew they weren't better than everybody else are totally blessed and blown away by chapter 4. That's the key. When I read God's Word and I hear about His grace and His mercy and forgiveness, and I'm, if I'm uplifted by that, I'm in the right spot. If I read chapter 4 and I read about God's grace and mercy anywhere else in the Bible and it kind of bums me out because that makes me on par with everybody else in the world, then I was in the wrong spot. God's Word works both ways. He brings the high low, and he brings the low high. That's what he does. All the same verse, he can do that. And that's what he's doing here. He's bringing them low, like he has been, to lift them up. He's not leaving them down there. He just, like I said at the beginning, has to start off with bedrock. You guys have trusted in your circumcision. You guys have trusted in Abraham. You guys have trusted in the fact you had the law. No. No, no, no. Abraham was justified because he believed God way before the law. And even when you had the law, you didn't keep the law, so you were guilty of the law, so that didn't hold true for you either. And this circumcision thing, well, if he justified Abraham before he was circumcised, then that means he's still justifying people whether they're circumcised or not. While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, he says, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised. That righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. You've got to walk in that faith. It's walking in that faith, not having him as a genetical father to you. It's a spiritual thing he's talking about here, this faith. Genetical, I made that up. It's not genetics. That's a real word. This was mind-blowing to all these people when they read this stuff. It's just mind-blowing. See, we don't think of it that much. We don't talk about Abraham. You know, we don't, oh gosh, the Jews have Abraham. Who do we have? You know, we don't think about it that way. We're like, okay. I mean, to them, Abraham was everything. He was everything. They would talk about him all the time. He was, the, he was just stellar to them. Just amazing. Just, I mean, he was everything to them. And for him to say, for Paul to say to them, you know, you do know that he's the father of everybody who has faith, not just you Jews. It's devastating to them. If they had put their trust in that. And also, by the way, the circumcision thing, doesn't matter anymore. Well, you want to start an argument with people in 2017? Talk about circumcision. I read a post about how we just got to stop those Muslims. Got to stop those Muslims from doing that to those little girls. They got to stop doing that because they circumcise little girls in a funny way. We got to stop that, the mutilating those girls. And I just posted on there, maybe we should stop mutilating boys too. Well, That's a Christian thing. We strap them down on a board and we whack things off that were intended by God and made by God and really don't have anything to do with Christianity at all. (gasps) kind of what you're saying, isn't it? I mean, I'm not for the Muslims at all. I mean, I think that that's not good at all. Don't misunderstand me, but a little call on the kettle black, isn't it? (laughs) Well, you want to start a fight. You talk about baptism. You talk about circumcision. You talk about dietary laws. Man, watch out. It's a principle. This is what I was getting at. If you understand chapter 4, you understand how to apply it to all three of those things. Grace, by faith, is what saves us. Not circumcision. Not baptism. Not dietary laws. Not keeping of the law in any way, shape, or form. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says that if you get circumcised, you're a debtor to keep the whole law, if you think that helps your salvation in any way. You're a debtor to keep the whole law. I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Paul was furious when the Judaizers would come in to the Gentiles and say, now that's great, but you must be circumcised also. No, beware of the mutilation, he said to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you that you've turned so soon? from this beautiful freedom, this grace, this mercy that you have, to to glom on to this stuff and to go through those things that God has never called you or asked you to do. It's a principle. Do you understand your salvation? Do we understand how we're saved, the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy that God's given us? Do we understand it, that it cannot have anything attached to it? There can be no addendums. There can be no, nothing stapled to the backside of the grace that God's given us, the righteousness that's been imputed to us. Nothing can be added to that. Nothing. It's got to be just grace. It has to be just mercy. Anything added to that hurts it, voids it, he said in Galatians. Be careful what you put your trust in or hope in or pride in, which is really all this is. There was pride in Abraham. There was pride in the circumcision. There was pride in owning the law. It made us better. It made them better than everybody else on the face of the earth. And Paul's wiping all that pride away. It's been imputed to Abraham. Abraham was righteous going to heaven if he died that day, and that was without circumcision. He was accounted for righteousness. He was there. For the promise, verse 13, that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, that's what it was intended to do, was to show us that we were sinners, to show us we were transgressors, to show us that we needed the salvation. It can't come any other way but through grace. Faith. Faith is made void. I don't want my faith made void. I don't want anybody's faith made void. Why are you so adamant about this? Why do you do this so much? Why do you always talk about this stuff? Can't we just have a normal Bible study for once? Maybe you thought to yourself, Sorry. Paul had a death grip on liberty. No one was going to take that from him. That is what freed him. He was a law keeper. He knew, he knew, he knew. He had all the doctrine. He had all the schooling. He had all the best teachers. And when God set him free, that liberty was nothing he was going to give up without a fight. He would never give that up. Never give up your liberty. It's not a cloak for vice. You can't say, now let's all go sin. Paul's going to take care of that next week in chapter 5, in case anybody got that dumb idea. But he definitely wants us to understand how much we're dependent upon Christ, what he's fully done for us and completely done for us, and that all we can do, like on Christmas morning, is say thank you and to open the present of gift, the gift of grace, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of salvation. It's a gift. You can't pay for it. You can't do anything. You can't make it any better. It is what it is. Liberty. Don't... Don't let go of that liberty. Don't think that you can improve upon what God's given us already and this righteousness that's been imputed to us. We can't add anything to it. We can't make it better. Holiness will come from it. It will not earn it. That promise of the seed, of being an heir of the world, was something that God was going to give to him and it was something that had to be received by faith. It was not something that you could earn or have a right to that God would have to owe you for. Verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be our promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. When Paul gave him that promise, or when God gave Abraham that promise of having a son, that's what it was. That was the promise, but by faith he gave, grabbed hold of that promise and moved the twin beds together. And then it happened. And God was already talking about Isaac. Oh, your seed's going to be great. He's done, it. And it ain't happened yet. They haven't even started. There was no conception yet. He was already talking about Isaac like it was a foregone conclusion. God could see it all. Then it's going to be Isaac, and he's going to have this really great love story that everybody's going to use in their Bible stories to describe how I got you guys to fall in love with Jesus and everything through Isaac and the servant, and she had to go with him without seeing him and all that. And and he he sees it all. There comes David, and then then there's Jesus, that's my son, and everything after that. And then there's 2017, and there's these guys at Calvary Chapel in Maryville. They're going to talk about this. He sees it all. I love it. That's what he means by, he talks about stuff that hasn't even happened yet, that isn't even there. He speaks, he calls those things that are dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. The Smiths aren't here. That's probably not fair. But I was thinking about Ron, Ron, their son, who died um, in the car accident and all. And this is a little, you know, Definitely way off the beaten path here, but what God is outside of time. We all get that kind of if we can possibly comprehend that He could see everything and everything at the same time. He just sees it all. He sees He sees the ark as clearly as He sees the kids playing out there on their fake ark out there. You know, He can, He sees it all. We understand that it's all happening, happened. I know it's hard for us to grasp. I mean, when Ron shows up in heaven, when he is in heaven, he is in heaven right now because he's a believer. You know his mom and dad, and we're all there with him right now? As far out as that is, as weird as that is. He never missed a beat without being with mom and dad who were believers. He shows up and they're all there. I don't know how that works. Blows my mind. I don't want to think about it too long because then it'll start smoke will come out of my ears. But that's how it is. When John writes the book of Revelation, and he sees the thousands upon thousands all singing these wonderful songs. Do you know he saw you and I there in the crowd? And then he writes it down, and we're just not there yet. I, mean, I know, you're all like, okay, i got to find a new church. Just hold on a minute. <laughs> Honestly, it's amazing. It shows, when you think about it too long, it just shows you how little we are, first of all, how big he is. But how sure our salvation is. I think that's important. When we talk about weird stuff like that, sometimes it's important to see how really, truly gigantic our God is, how big he is, how powerful he is, how omnipotent, omniscient, everything, omni-omni. And then I wonder about my little Thursday. I don't know if I'm saved today. You know, my little dumb little thing that goes on in my head, and God's going, I don't know what you're worried about. I got this. I've had this. I'm having this. I don't know how to describe it to you because you're there and I'm here and you're here. and We're saved, we're saved, we're saved, we're saved because I believe, I believe, I believe. And that faith, because of what God said, is action on my part and acts that grace. That's what he's describing there. It's amazing. It's amazing what he's done. So, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. I want to make sure they all know that they're saved and it's available to everybody if it was by the law and not by grace, by faith. Then we wouldn't be sure. There is no assurance of salvation. You'd never know if you're okay. You'd wonder every day if I'm going to be saved. It's only when I die that I find out. If you hear any kind of doctrine that causes you to doubt whether Christ is sufficient for your salvation and you're just not sure if you're saved because there might be some things you might have missed, it's not of God. God has given us his word so that we can have assurance, assurance of our salvation. There's no doubt in my mind that I move forward in that every single day. Sin or not, I boldly come to that throne of grace. Nothing ever stops me from coming to that throne of grace. Nothing is ever impeding my getting to him because Christ has paid for all of my sins. That's what it means for his righteousness to be imputed to us. I still can't get a hold of that sometimes. On my worst day as a pastor, I can still, I am as righteous as I was on my best day as a pastor. I am righteous because of Christ. I have righteousness because of Christ. It's amazing. And from that brings humility, it brings thought, it brings prayer, it brings thanksgiving, it brings obedience in my life. Teach your kids that, teach them grace. Teach them forgiveness. Teach them mercy. Teach them imputed righteousness. Big words like that. Teach them that because it's a principle that they'll need far more than they're going to need at any college. Far more than anything they could ever learn down here from us. Good work ethic's what you need. No, you don't. Not compared to this. This is everything. This affects everything. This produces a good work ethic. This produces a great doctor. This produces a great whatever it is that God wants you to do for the next 50 years on this earth, which really doesn't matter anyway. This. Teach them this principle so they understand that because they're going to have hard days and they're going to think things you thought would never come into their minds. They're going to think, I'm not righteous, I'm not good enough, I'm not bad. I may as well throw in the towel. I may as well go down that road anyway. I may as well give up. I may as well put that gun to my head. This forgiveness, grace, mercy, imputed righteousness will keep them on those days when Satan is at his worst. He gives life to the dead. We were dead. Every one of us were dead in our trespasses. You remember in uh, Deuteronomy 22.11, I know you, you won't, I don't remember stuff like that either, but remember when he told the priests, I don't want you to wear linen garments mixed with wool. Kind of an odd thing. This is what he's talking about. I don't want linen, grace, mixed with wool, works, Ever. Ever. Only linen. Only linen. Only breezy, freeing linen. No itchy, scratchy, hot wool ever. I don't want them mixed. It's a sin for the priest to wear anything mixed, wool and linen. It's amazing. There's actually, you know, that that 119 group that talked about not eating ham and everything, they put stuff out all the time. They also have one on this, wool and linen. They made a law out of this beautiful thing that's supposed to show us grace. Do you wear wool and linen? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Sinner. Thanks. Delete. Wool and linen, meant to show this principle right here, never mix your works with God's grace, only rare, only wear, only sport God's grace whenever you're out in the town. Just wear the grace. Faith and grace is salvation. That salvation is sure when you trust in God and what he's done for you, and not your own works. So, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, speaking of Abraham, pushing the twin beds together. Since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that he that what he had promised. He was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. He never considered his body as a part of the equation as to what God was going to do. Do we grasp that when it comes to God's grace? Do I ever think, well, God's grace is awesome. He's really big. He didn't count on me, though. Because that's the idea. Abraham never for once said, that's great, we have a kid, but have you seen me lately, God? I'm 100 years old. Ain't nothing going on around here, you know? He never even for once thought of his own inadequacies or his own faults or problems or inabilities. He only said, you said what? Sweet. Sarah, we're moving the beds together tonight. I mean, that's all he thought. There was no doubt in his mind. And that moved him to action. Same with our grace. Same with God's word towards you and towards I. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was raised from the dead because he was accepted the perfect sacrifice, you don't matter in the equation. This is between God and his son, Jesus, and you got saved by believing what we just read, what we just said. It's amazing. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. He didn't just say it. He didn't just write it. Moses didn't just put it down just because he wanted us all to remember that Abraham got saved, he wanted us to all know that it's to us also. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The cross is important, the resurrection more so. The cross is the payment. The resurrection is the Proof, the receipt that it was effective and completely accepted by God. Because He got up, because He was raised, that means we're justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. We were dead in our trespasses. There was nothing we could do, but God has raised us. He's raised us. Something that was impossible, something that couldn't happen, something there's no way that can possibly be. For sure, it's a miracle. We believe in water being turned to wine. We believe in the Red Sea. We believe in all these wonderful miracles. But sometimes we come across stuff like this. Well, how could that possibly happen? Because he does miracles. He justified me a sinner. It's a miracle. It's a miracle for you too. I believe in miracles. Thank goodness. It says that he was strengthened by faith. I want to back up a few, and then we'll close. You know, it says in Romans chapter 12, we'll get to there in a while, verse 3, that God's given us all a measure of faith. In the beginning, he says that his faith was in action. It says, and not being weak in faith, in verse 19. Then later on, he says he was strengthened in faith, in verse 20. You've got faith. Everybody has that ability to believe on God. They have it. But they have to do it. You have to. Everybody has to. Everybody I speak to. Everybody I witness to. They have to use that faith that God's given them. They got to push those beds together because God said he could. Not because they were worthy or they were able. But because God said so. And when they do that, and when you do that, when I do that, when we understand this chapter 4, our faith is strengthened at the end of it so that there's more to do by faith. It's a simple truth we all experience in our life every single day. You meet somebody new, hey, good to meet you. No, you can't babysit my kids. But as you get to know them, as you find them faithful, as you see them coming and doing what they said they were going to do, As your friendship develops, as your relationship gets closer, as you begin to know what they're thinking and all that, pretty soon, yeah, you can babysit my kids. Because I trust you, I know you, I have faith, I believe. You have no idea what they're going to do with your kids, but based on past experience and how many times they've come through for you, you understand that you can trust them with more and more and more of your heart, more of your life, more of the things that are important to you. We do that every day. That's by design. It's by design because that's what we do with God. We show up with God and they say, okay, here I am. I'm going to give you a little bit. I want your whole life. Okay, well, here's smoking. (laughs) All right, I can work with smoking. I'm just picking on something easy. It could be anything. Nothing wrong. Smoke them if you got them. That's really not a sin. But give you something little. You see God work there. I'll give you this, then too. I'll give you that, and I'll give you this, and I'll give you more, and I'll give you this and that and this. And all of a sudden, as God comes through every single time, you realize I, there's really nothing I can't trust Him with. I can give Him literally anything, and He'll do awesome things with it. I can give Him my job problem. I can give Him my coworker problem. I can give Him my wife. I can give Him my husband. He'll fix them. I can give Him my kids. They're yours, God. Figure them out. Remember Moses and God went back and forth with those folks. They're your kids. No, they're your kids. Give them to God. Let God do it. But you begin to trust Him more and your faith increases. That's the idea. A little bit of faith, exercise it. A little bit more faith, exercise it. A little bit more faith, exercise it. You want to be a giant? You want to be a faithful giant in this world, in a world full of faithlessness? Trust Him with more and more and more. Believe on him. Let him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you've given us a way of salvation, that most of us, hopefully all of us, have believed on that salvation. We believed what you said. We weren't here 2,000 years ago when your son was on the cross. We weren't here when he was resurrected. All we have is eyewitness accounts documented 2,000 years ago in this book that we hold here tonight, and yet we believe. And you told your guys that they were blessed because they believed, but they saw. You said it was going to be even more blessed for those who didn't see and believed, and that was us that you were talking about. So we are blessed. We believe by faith that your Son died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead justifying us. We thank you for that. We thank you that you've imputed your righteousness to us. We thank you that you've counted us righteous. And Lord, I pray that we live our lives that way, God, every single day waking up because we love you, because we have a relationship with you, because we're not workers in your kingdom, we're spouses of yours. That relationship can't be broken. It can't be improved upon. You love us simply because you do. If you loved us while we were your enemies, how much better are we now that we're not? So God, thank you for that assuredness of our salvation, the peace that it brings us, the comfort, the quietness in our minds. Now God, while the rest of the, for the rest of the time that we're down here though, we want to live for you. We want to be in obedience to you. We want to trust you with more and more of our lives. We want to give you more and more control. Uh, we do want to give you our whole lives honestly and help us then to walk that way, to walk like Abraham walked. God, Never expecting anything in return, just walking at your word, doing what you told us to do. We thought about, as Abraham was told to move with his whole family, go to another country and all the crazy stuff. How do we want to be like that? Just simply believing you, taking the next step because you told us to. We want to live our lives that way. And I don't ever want to stop living our lives that way, God. So thank you. Lord, bless these guys as they go tonight. Bless our kids and the Sunday school teachers or Wednesday school teachers that have taken their time to study and pour into our kids this grace and this mercy that we talked about. Pouring into them you, Jesus, and your word. Thank you for them. Bless them. I hope they got more out of the lesson than even the kids did. And then also bless our little kids. I pray they grow up not only at church with this grace and mercy, but in our homes with this grace and mercy, that they grow up better than we did, more assured of their salvation, more confident in the God whom they've trusted than we ever have, Lord. Thank you for them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.